الحمد لله الحمد لله الذي هدانا سبلنا الحمد لله الذي هدانا للإيمان الحمد لله الذي هدانا لهذا وما كنا لنهتدي لولا أن هدانا الله وجاءت رسل ربنا بالحق وصدق المرسلون وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله سبحانه إذا قضى أمرا فإنما يقول له كن فيكون لا راد لأمره أسبغ علينا نعمه ظاهرة وباطنة وإن تعدوا نعمة الله لا تحصوها وأشهد أن سيدنا وهادينا ورحمة الله لنا سيدنا محمد صلى الله عليه وآله وسلم عبد الله ورسوله خاتم أنبيائه لا نبي بعده من يطع الله ورسوله وأولي الأمر من المؤمنين فلا مضل له ومن يعص الله ورسوله وأولي الأمر من المؤمنين فلا هادي له ومن يتوكل على الله فنعم المولى ونعم الوكيل أما بعد أيها المؤمنون Brothers and sisters There might be a slightly different approach in this khutbah to what you are familiar with in other khutbahs At times some of us may think that oh, the khutbahs that we give are they lack a spiritual content they are not in the order of what is needed by many people and that is the moral character and to build the Islamic inside so that after that we can work on the Islamic outside. That has been one of the concerns that from time to time pops up regarding the way we express ourselves in the khutbah at this time every week. To try to put this concern 
to rest. It is necessary to express that there are certain foundations that we should all take for granted. If we were speaking here to individuals who have just become Muslims, just yesterday or last week or very recently, they became Muslims. And they want to familiarize themselves with the Islamic persona. They want themselves to become better human beings and improving Muslims. Then yes, we'll speak to them about the morality of Islam, about the ethics of Islam, about the spiritual content of Islam. And maybe yours truly have, has taken many things for granted and thought that we all have these necessary ingredients in our lives and in our personalities. And just in case this has been a gap in the previous years of expressing Islamic ideas and Islamic ideology at this time, every Friday, we will backtrack in this khutbah a little and remind those who need a reminder that Islam and Iman and Ihsan, all of these features in the Islamic soul and in Islamic society are girded or founded on what we may with the hazard of abbreviation we may summarize in one word and that word is Ar-Rahmah everything we do or think about if it does not spring if it does it's not extracted from Ar-Rahma and we hope that anyone who's, who listens to the khutbas expressed here in the past we hope that everyone understands that the explanations in the khutbah are anchored in Ar-Rahma as a reminder Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala teaches us as well as his prophet that everything we do we begin it with Bismillahir Rahman Rahim. Everything. When you want to eat, you say Bismillahir Rahman Rahim. When you want to embark on an effort, you begin it with Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. When you go to sleep, you say, you use Bismillah. Everything. Ar Rahmanu Allama Al Quran. 
It is the mercy giver, Ar-Rahman, who teaches the Qur'an, who inculcates our lives with the meanings of the Qur'an. There are... Now, before we get to that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has 99 attributes. Why did he pick from all of these 99 attributes two of his for us to be conscious of him every time we do something? And those two attributes are extracted from Ar-Rahma. Bismillahirrahman Ar-Rahim. Rahmati sabaqat ghadabi. My Rahma has preceded ahead of my wrath. But we live in a world now that doesn't... I have to backtrack a little and explain to you because there's an argument or there's a presentation that says, look, Muslims, they don't have the word love in their religion. They, they tend to be harsh. This may be true of certain cultures, but it's not true of the Quran and the Prophet. So when we use the word Ar-Rahma or Allah's attributes of Ar-Rahman and Ar-Rahim, and some su- other supporting attributes, Ra'uf, which is Ar-Ra'fa, Wadud, Latif, and others of Allah's attributes indicate that there is a passion and a compassion that undermine our intentions in life when you intend something if there is no foundation of rahma for it you're doing something not accurate so when these people come to us with the argument oh you muslims you don't have love in your religion we have something that is better more inclusive and more meaningful than love and that is rahma mercy and grace the reason we say this is rahma is expressed by those who have power towards those who don't have power love doesn't necessarily mean that Besides, love has other worldly or physical meanings. But when we say, when we ourselves, when we use the words Rahmah, if we understand what we are saying, we would know that it's not that we feel sorry for others, even though that's a partial component of that. But we are, what we are doing, we are expressing love from a position of psychological 
power, social power, and material power, if we have it. That's what it means to express Allah's grace and mercy in everything that we do. But what do we have? We have a world that is void of this Rahmah. This is a vicious world that we live in. Individuals are vicious. Organizations are vicious. And other manifestations of power are vicious, savage, bloody. All of the opposite expressions of Rahmah that is ingrained into everything we do if we understand our relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Being that many of us suffer from dynastic Islam, either Umawi or Safawi, we, our minds are concentrated on fiqhi issues. What is mufsidat al-salah? What is mufsidat al-wudu? Has anyone ever encountered in their acquisition of their of the knowledge of their deen? Has anyone ever thought what is mufsidat al-rahmah? It doesn't exist in our books of fiqh, in our books of Islamic doctrines, etc. What are mufsidat? What voids rahmah? What is it? So here, we may think now we are breaking new grounds. Think, think about this when you, after you listen to this khutbah and go your own way in life in this coming week, in the coming future, think about it. What makes an individual or what makes a society void of rahmah? Has no, they have no rahmah in them. What is it? Is it because there's too much food that they are eating? We mentioned that there's a hadith attributed to the Prophet that actually wasn't said by the Prophet, but it is a statement that carries much validity in it. Al-Ma'ida Baytudda. The stomach is the domain of illness. And that illness is not only a physical illness. The illness can also be a spiritual illness, an illness in the person's heart. That's what happens. One of the Mufsidat of Ar-Rahmah is indulging in materialistic life. That is why some Muslims, because of this absent element in their learning and teaching of Islam, that's why some of them begin to question 
I think something is missing inside of me. I need this emptiness inside to be filled up. So they go looking for individuals who can fill this void inside themselves. Some of them find Sufis. Some of them find other individuals who are balanced in their acquisition of Allah's words and his prophet's teachings. Lust is another one of these elements that spoils the mercy that we that's supposed to be in our God-given state of nature. When you look at the world, the way Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created this world, He created it with the manifestations of mercy. The, the, the weather, the atmospherics, the climate. It rains, it snows, precipitation, the winds, Everything is an expression of Allah's mercy. But then we see violence in this expression of Allah's mercy. There's such things as tornadoes and earthquakes and cyclones and violent winds and storms, etc. That exists. But does it is it the normal, is it the norm in nature, or is it something that has to do with our social and spiritual corruption? Some people have placed the, a galaxy of distances between what is man's behavior and what is the behavior of nature. They worked on this for centuries so that no one can connect the way we feel with the way the world feels about us. If we violate our God-given nature inside of us, we invite the same or corresponding violation in the nature outside of us. When we speak about this Rahmah, has anyone ever said to themselves, let me take a few minutes to look in the eyes of a broken-hearted person? And there are many of them. They could be refugees. They could be orphans, they could be widows, they could come from broken families, they could be the very poor in society who have no means in their lives. If you wanted to nurture the Rahmah in you, the God-given Rahmah in you, just look in their eyes for a few minutes. You're not, what, who, 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 are, who, who am I? Who are you? Who's anyone? 
to be more important than to look into the eyes of individuals like that. And it doesn't matter what religion they have. Just go, if you don't want to look in there, speak to them. Speak to them for a few minutes. Engage how much rahmah you have inside of you. Have you ever tried to do that? Or you want to avoid them? No, don't, don't. You, you pass, they're there on the street or somewhere in a park or wherever. You want not to look at them. That tells you inside of you, there is no rahmah. You can say Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim a million times. But you're not expressing something that is inside of you. It's an artificial Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Every time you, you express the word Rahmah, you express it without a spirit to it. How do you think they feel? Materialism has crept up on us so much and so profoundly that our psychology has become mechanized. We no longer have the subtle connection with each other that come with hu normal human interaction. We're behaving just like machines. And not only are we behaving like machines in our internal selves, they also now want to make machines out of our physical body with this artificial intelligence that they are talking about. So here we are, we're, we're on the verge of parting with our God-given nature. So when we express ourselves in these khutbas and we speak about those who are oppressed in the world, and we speak about those who are responsible for that oppression, in the back of our minds and in the depths of our heart, this element of Rahmah is central. Once a man came to the Prophet of Allah, may Allah's peace and blessings be upon him and his, and he complained to him that he had a He complained that his heart is very harsh. He has a stony heart. In other words, he doesn't have a tender, loving heart. In the first instance, we salute that person for being frank. Many people now, they're not, they can't be that frank. In this case, there was an individual who approached the Prophet said, I have a very stony heart. I can't feel for others. That's what it means. Then the Prophet of Allah, may Allah's peace and blessings be upon him and his, said, 
أَتُحِبُّ أَنْ يُلَيِّنَ اللَّهُ قَلْبَكَ Do you want, do you desire that Allah tenderizes your heart? وَتُدْرِكَ حَاجَتَكَ Thereby accomplishing what you want. Because obviously if he's, if he's complaining that I have uh, an irresponsive heart, He's looking for a way that he can make himself more giving and taking with emotions towards other people. Tender emotions. So the Prophet said to him, Irhamil yateen. Express mercy towards an orphan. The Prophet wanted him to become physical. It's not just enough to say you come across an orphan, a refugee, a homeless person, a person who is extremely poor, and you say, I feel for you. Is there anything I can do? The Prophet went a step further. He said, Place your hand on his head and move it. Wipe over his head. And then further than that, he said, And feed him out of your own food if you're eating a sandwich give him part of that sandwich if you're having some soup give him part of that soup if you're having a salad give him salad whatever you have give him of what you have This brings us to an issue that is important as it played out in our generation when socialism and communism and all of this were concerned with the plight of the dispossessed and the disempowered. We had people, we had systems like that, governments like that in the world. But what did they say? One of their psychological approaches to this problem is you don't give them anything. Because when you give them, you are ex extending the problem. Instead of the problem being solved in a few years, by giving people in need, you are making the problem, you are prolonging the problem into scores of years don't do that and what was their rationale they said because if you don't give them you bring them closer to revolution you have them revolt against the status quo well if that is true if denial which they are have been propagating in their indoctrination books, if denial 
is a way to revolution, then the most denied people in the world would be the first people to revolt against those who are oppressing them. But is this the case? You look in the world. Is this the case? Do revolutions begin like that? Or do revolutions begin when there is no longer a division between those who have and those who have not? In other words, those who have become those who have not. That's how revolutions begin. And how does that happen if there's no rahma? It won't happen. What brings a revolution about is the absent element of rahma, which they've wisened up those people who are in their deep, under deep cover, in their deep state. They've wisened up. They know that in Islam there's this element here of rahma that can move masses. And dare we say, move mountains. If we just understood who we are. Some of the head honchos of the mushriks came to Allah's Prophet and he said, they said to him something like this, we will consider sitting down with you and discussing these issues but you have to expel from your council, from your setting, you have to expel the riffraff. They were talking about individuals like Bilal and Abu Dhar and Salman and Suhaib. They were telling the Prophet, if you want us to listen to what you are saying, Get rid of these. And the answer to them came from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. وَاصْبِرْ نَفْسَكَ مَعَ الَّذِينَ يَدْعُونَ رَبَّهُمْ بِالْغَدَاتِ وَالْعَشِيِّ يُرِيدُونَ وَجْهَهُ وَلَا تَعْدُ عَيْنَاكَ عَنْهُمْ تُرِيدُ زِينَةَ الْحَيَاةِ الدُّنْيَا وَلَا تُطِعَ these mushriks. وَلَا تُطِعْ مَنْ أَغْفَلْنَا قَلْبَهُ عَنْ ذِكْرِنَا وَاتَّبَعَ هَوَاهُ وَكَانَ أَمْرُهُ فُرُطًا Another piece of information that comes from the history of our Prophet. Of course, this is not one of these hadiths that you're going to hear cited from these people who have idolized the hadiths the false hadiths the prophet of allah may allah's peace and blessings be upon him said ikhwanukum khawalukum ja'alahumullahu tahta aydikum faman kana akhuhu tahta yadihi فَلْيُطْعِمْهُ مِمَّا يَأْكُلْ وَلْيُلْبِسْهُ مِمَّا يَلْبَسْ وَلَا تُكَلِّفُوهُمْ مَا يَغْلِبُهُمْ فَإِنْ كَلَّفْتُمُوهُمْ فَأَعِينُوهُمْ 
You would think this hadith, this hadith, by the way, is al-Bukhari. You would think a hadith like this would be quoted very frequently. And the reason it is not quoted is because it causes a person who is affluent to feel with the with a person who is denied. In other words, a rich man now has to carry the responsibilities of the poor man. The Prophet says, Ikhwanukum khawalukum. Your brothers are your are those who serve you. We have to pause for a moment because it's easy just to run words, but it's more demanding to think of what these words mean. Allah's Prophet is saying those who are offering services to you are your brothers. Allah has placed them in your care. فَمَنْ كَانَ تَحْتَ يَدِهِ أَخُونَ or أخوه فليطعمه مما يأكل. If that is the case, you are his brother, you the rich man, and you can take this word uh, word and apply it to every rich man. There's no exclusion here. You the rich man, you're the brother of that poor person who needs the job. So if you are eating, you give him out of what you are eating. It's not like you're going to be eating steak and he's going to be eating the crumbs. That's today's world. And especially within peculiar Islamic cultures and geography. وَلْيُلْبِسْهُ مِمَّا يَلْبَسْ The Prophet is telling that rich man, you have your servant, whatever capacity that is. There's many sub-classifications of serving, of working for someone else. He should wear what you are wearing. Where do you see that? We have Islamic societies. Where do you see the prince? Or where do you see the pauper wearing the same dress as the prince? Which is the meaning of this hadith. Don't ask them to do what is beyond their capacity. فَإِن كَلَّفْتُمُوهُمْ فَأَعِينُوهُمْ And if you do order them to do more than they can do, then you help them. Then you help them.
This hadith, the ayat, the hadiths that are parallel and twin in meaning to this hadith, all of them condemn those who are verbal Muslims, but in fact, they are stabbing the Muslims in the back, the committed Muslims in the back. The Prophet of Allah, may Allah's peace and mercy and blessings be upon him, says, Those who have mercy will have Allah's mercy upon them. Irhamu man fil Yarhamkum man Express your mercy on earth so that the mercy of heaven can be expressed to you. Aqulu qawli hadha wa astaghfirullaha li wa lakum ud'uhu subhanah wa antum ala yaqeenin bil ijabah وتوبوا إلى الله إن الله تواب رحيم الحمد لله بجميع المحامد على جميع النعم وصلى الله وسلم على المبعوث خيرا ورحمة وهدى لكافة الأمم محمد النبي الأمي وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم Dear committed Muslims This week and I don't know how many of these masajid around have the sense of living in the real world This week in the real world is what is called the 100th anniversary of the Belfort Declaration. That is when the British, the imperial power at that time, our Islam is not crippled. When we understand Allah and His Prophet, we can look at superpowers, we can analyze superpowers, we can expose superpowers, and we can shame superpowers, the least that we can do. 100 years ago this week, the British who emerged victorious in the military conflict of the First World War, they along with the French went into Muslim lands and at their own freedom, they carved it all up. They called a such and such a territory Egypt, another such and such a territory Sudan, and another one Palestine, and another one Syria, and on and on and on. Until we Muslims who are supposed to be one social unit, now we're over 50 social units called nation states. This Belfort Declaration 
did not come from a vacuum. We, the Muslims of the world, were sliding away from our responsibilities. And finally, the culmination of all of that was our military defeat. A military defeat should not mean a psychological defeat. But some Muslims, because of the military defeat, were also psychologically defeated. And we make specific reference to the rulers in the Arabian Peninsula who at that time were camel riders. They were subject to British orders. And they acquiesced. They said, one of them, one of the kings of what is currently the abomination of Saudi Arabia, he said, there cannot be any Arab or Muslim who can take serious issue with a national, a homeland for the Jewish people. That's a statement way back then. And what do you think? We had committed Muslims who were ruling in the Arabian Peninsula from the 19, the end of the First World War up until this very day. As a reminder, if we want to speak about, of course, every elementary Muslim knows that the Zionist theft and the Zionist colonization, Muslims are still unable to say Zionist colonization of Palestine. We still use the imported word they pick the vocabulary for us and they say it's a Zionist occupation. We're not defeated. We say to them, no, it's a Zionist colonization. And if we got rid of colonialism, which we did in the military sense, but colonialism is still around all over the place. In Masajid, there's a colonialist mentality. On the minbars, of Friday, there's a colonialist mentality, unable to speak truth against Zionism and imperialism. Just as a quick reminder, these are going to be quick points. In 1990, when the ruler of Iraq went into Kuwait, the rulers in Arabia, they needed justification. They needed validation for the orders that come to them from imperialist and Zionist quarters. We have to put, if we're going to rescue you, the Arabian kings in the Arabian Peninsula, from the occupiers of Kuwait, then we have to station our troops in the Arabian Peninsula. We need military bases there. And so the rulers went to the religious establishment, the Wahhabi establishment, and they told them, we need a legal opinion here. This is serious. And as to be expected, their chief mufti, Ibn Baz, now in the presence of the Almighty, 
issue the fatwa. Go ahead. Yes, it's legal. Have these bases all around the place. And that's what they did. That religious establishment now in the Arabian Peninsula had a history of corroboration with the clients of imperialism and Zionism. Even when they wanted to introduce primitive communication technology way back in the 1940s, they had to go to the religious establishment and say, tell the people this is halal. We can have something like a telex or a telephone in this kingdom. And as to be expected, another fatwa on demand. And for a time, the religious establishment said that radio and television are haram. Can you believe this? In the, in the end of the 1950s, towards the beginning of the 1960s, in those years, they said radio and television is haram. But then it took maneuvering by the, the political establishment to convince the religious establishment to issue an Islamic fatwa that radio and television are kosher, which they did. There was, of course, maybe many of you are not familiar with this, the history of that country, but in the early 1960s, there was a struggle between two brothers one of them was the king, King Saud, and the other one was the prince Faisal. There was a struggle between them. Saud was corrupt to his bones. Faisal was a more average person. It took the fatwa of the mufti at that time, Muhammad ibn Ibrahim, to issue an edict, a fatwa, supporting Faisal to become king. These are the ones today who are having their wings clipped. Remember, this is the kingdom. Some of you may be familiar with their mindset and their educational system. In their religious books, they used to, they, they drove us crazy, just 20 25 years ago, they drove us crazy. It's a good thing many Muslims cannot tune into them. Speaking about al-wala and al-bara. Al-wala is Islamic alliance. Al-bara is Islamic disavowal from the kafirs and the mushriks. They spoke about that and they wrote about that. Now, now, they are taking all of this information out of their syllabi, their school curricula. They're taking it out. On demand, once again, they're looking for a group of those who were given 
Islamic certificates from their institutions to validate what they are doing. What is it? You, it was halal to speak about al-wala and al-bara 20 and 30 years ago, and now you want to take it out? You don't want anyone to speak about it anymore? Now you're taking these hadiths, these ayat, you're taking them out, and you're bringing ideas that have to do with civil society, non-governmental organizations, NGOs, Samuel Huntington's theories, etc. You're placing them inside of your books. All of this is happening on our watch. And these masajid that are empty-headed are just contributing to this problem. So in the past year, they've taken away jurisdiction from Al-Amirina bil-Ma'roof and Al-Nahina an al-Munkar, as they are called over there. They gave on paper now the right for women to drive cars, which will begin next year. They can't drive cars so far now. And now, listen to this. They have established an institution to scrutinize the Prophet's hadiths. You see, if Muslims themselves don't want to do it, I mean independent-minded, sincere, committed, honest, qualified, meritorious, Islamic scholars, if they don't want to do it, someone else is coming in to do it. And it's the wrong people. They're establishing an institute there, and this is their words. I'm quoting. Of course, it's in Arabic, and I'll tell you what it means. تَنْقِيَةُ الْحَدِيثِ they want to filter the prophetic hadith from what has been attached to it texts and explanations that justify killing and terrorism. All of this is happening. It's not happening because there's a genuine scholarly impulse in that decrepit kingdom. No, it's not happening because of it. It's happening because they are embarking on a strategy of an expressed, a public, an official peace with the Zionist thieves in the Holy Land. That's why they're doing it. They have, the Saudis have 20, over 22 institutions of education. These are basically 1 through K schools around the world. In Europe, in the United States, and in some countries in the Muslim East. They have more than 22 of them. Now, they are telling us, in these institutions, they want to take out of the curriculum the religious element. Islamic books of history, Islamic books of theology, Islamic books of fiqh or whatever, they want to take all of that out. 
That's the way that they are going. And what makes it possible for them to do it today? Because the Muslims in the past years have been silent. No one is looking them to, what are you doing? The uh, son-in-law of the President of the United States, who lives around the block here, by the way, just came back this week from a secret visit to Saudi Arabia. He had some advisors with him. Why secret? And this is his third. This is his third visit in this year to that kingdom. What's going on? Ask yourself, are we not allowed to think? The Saudi corrupt family is now permitting women to go to sports stadiums. They were prohibited from going to sports stadiums. Now they can go to three of these stadiums beginning next year. One in Jeddah, the other in Riyadh, and the third in Adamam. What do we have also? We're speaking about the declaration of Belfort in the real world today. This is what's happening to give life to a person who did not possess. The British did not possess Palestine. They cannot give it to a, to a people who don't live in Palestine, which they did. We had one of these major journalists in Bahrain appear on Israeli TV, Channel 10. And he's speaking to them, to the Israeli public, about the terrorism of Hamas. This is a Bahraini journalist, well-known journalist in that country. He might not be well-known outside of that country. But what, is it, what does it serve? To speak about Hamas as a terrorist organization that threatens Israel. What does that serve? And then we have those in the United Arab Emirates. Officials, government officials apologizing to Israel because a sports team of the United Arab Emirates would not shake hands with an Israeli sports team. Why do you have to apologize? Who said you have to apologize? You want freedom? If these players didn't want to shake the hands of Israeli players, that's their choice. And you go apologizing to them, you can see what's coming. Now, the interior ministry in that diminutive kingdom of Bahrain wants to issue visas to the neighboring people in Qatar who want to go to Bahrain. These are two countries ne virtually next to each other, the same religion, the same history, the same culture, the same language, everything, and you need a visa to go? This, when a person reads something like this, he is reminded of the roadblocks that are all over the Muslim East. You can't go from one place to another without official sanction. Now we have these Arabian 
Arabians who say Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim millions of times in their lives. Compare that to a person like Jeremy Corbyn. The Yahudi butcher, Netanyahu, is in London to commemorate the 100th year of the Belfour Declaration. And he was invited to go to a dinner. He refused. This is not a Muslim. This is a person who can see truth and he can see the counter-truth and he wants to be honest to himself. That's all it takes. You don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to be a political scientist to know this truth. And then you have Prince Williams. Prince Williams. The royal family in, in that kingdom of all of most of the problems that the Muslims have. He's warning. He warned us. This is in the news just today. That the earth has more population than it can tolerate. You see, when there is no rahmah, there is no mercy. You look at numbers. The correct statement that should have been said, the earth has more greed than it should have. Not more people than it should have. It's not the quantity that's a threat to the earth, the number of people that are increasing. It is the the type of psychology that is metastasizing to kill us all on this God-given earth that we all share. Rahma, you ask, where is a Rahma? Is there any of that? Do you see it anywhere? And if you see it, support it. Who are the people who are the Palestinians? The poor Palestinians. They've been kicked around so much. Some of them, not many, some of them still pay homage to the Saudi crowd because of the money. Money is not going to liberate Palestine. What's going to liberate Palestine is husn at-tawakkul ala Allah. That's what's going to liberate Palestine. You gambled, even you in the Palestinian domain, you gambled on Egypt. You gambled on Saudi Arabia. You gambled on Qatar. You gambled on Turkey. There's a lot of details to this and we don't have time for details. But what happened after these years of taking the pulse in all of these capitals, in Cairo, in Ankara, in Doha, in Riyadh, what happened? You find yourself going to the place where you should have known from the beginning. The Islamic Republic, there, there is where it counts. There is where people are living reality and not living in ivory towers like the corrupt princes in the Arabian Peninsula. And here we have a demonstration, half a block away in front of the Turkish embassy. These are Muslims speaking against Muslims, at least in the loose terminology of the word. If there was Rahma, there wouldn't be a demonstration there. 
They would be sitting down speaking to each other as they should. The same thing here. 34 years in the street. If they had any rahmah in them, this wouldn't have existed. But who, to whom do you complain? We complain to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who knows all of this. And Allah bear witness that our sincerity is not going to be diluted by the hypocrisy of your enemies. Allahumma arina al-haqqa haqqan warzuqna tiba'ah. وَأَرِنَا الْبَاطِلَ بَاطِلًا وَارْزُقْنَا اجْتِنَابَهُ وَلَا تَجْعَلْهُ مُلْتَبِسًا عَلَيْنَا وَاجْعَلْنَا لِلْمُتَّقِينَ إِمَامًا رَبَّنَا لَا تُؤَاخِذْنَا إِنْ نَسِيْنَا أَوْ أَخْطَأْنَا رَبَّنَا وَلَا تَحْمِلْ عَلَيْنَا إِصْرًا كَمَا حَمَلْتَهُ عَلَى الَّذِينَ مِنْ قَبْلِنَا ربنا ولا تحملنا ما لا طاقة لنا به واعف عنا واغفر لنا وارحمنا أنت مولانا ارحمنا أنت مولانا فانصرنا على القوم الكافرين ربنا أفرغ علينا صبرا وثبت أقدامنا وانصرنا على القوم الكافرين ربنا افتح بيننا وبين قومنا بالحق وأنت خير الفاتحين ربنا صل على محمد وآله الطيبين الطاهرين بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والعصر إن الإنسان لفي خسر إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصوا بالحق وتواصوا بالصبر ومن أظلم ممن منع مساجد الله أن يذكر فيها اسمه وسعى في خرابها أولئك ما كان لهم أن يدخلوها إلا خائفين لهم في الدنيا خزي ولهم في الآخرة عذاب عظيم إن الله يأمركم أن تؤدوا الأمانات إلى أهلها وإذا حكمتم بين الناس أن تحكموا بالعدل إن الله نعم يعظكم به إن الله كان سميعا بصيرا ولذكر الله أكبر والله يعلم ما تصنعون وأقم الصلاة